Well, this morning, I want to talk about helping people see Jesus, because that's really the primary function of the church. We're supposed to help people see Jesus. Of course, that goes back to the purpose statement of Paul's letter that we've touched on a number of times as we begin this series. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, Paul describes the church as a pillar of the truth. He's saying that our job as the church is to hold up and to hold out the truth of the gospel for all to see. This letter, written by Paul to Timothy and the uh, Ephesian church that he was pastoring, this letter here, uh, using this illustration, was very fitting uh, because the Ephesians, as we said before, knew exactly how pillars were to work. The famous Temple of Artemis was housed in their city, and that temple boasted 60-foot pillars that thrusted the temple roof high up into the sky. And so imagine, if you were living back then, imagine if you were an ancient traveler trying to make your way to Ephesus, but you get lost, you get disoriented, you get off the path. And you don't know where to go, and it's getting dark, and so you fear the possibility of having to spend the night in the open country exposed to all the dangers. But then you look up, and a long way off in the distant horizon, you see the setting sun reflecting off something. And you stare hard enough, and you realize it's the marble roof of the famous temple in Ephesus thrusted high into the sky. And imagine your relief now, now that you know where you're trying to go. Now you know where safety can be found. I think that's what Paul means when he says the uh, the church is to be a pillar of the truth, lifting up the truth. We hold it up, we hold out Jesus for all the lost to see in order to find their salvation. I think a modern day example for us would be to think of, of a lighthouse. Imagine the church, like a lighthouse, We're trying to help people who are lost in darkness, who are tossed about by the storms of life. We're trying to help them see where safety lies, where safety can be found. Now, Paul's already given us earlier in chapter 1 an imagery of a shipwreck. So picture that shipwreck. Picture scores of people lost at sea in great peril. They're facing imminent destruction, and what they need most of all is a lighthouse on shore to brightly shine its light, to to point them to safety, helping them to see where rescue can be found. But imagine, imagine if that lighthouse is so distracted by infighting between its operators that they fail to even turn on the lights. Or imagine if, if they're so concerned with their appearances, they're spending so much time arguing, debating about the exterior color of the building or about the interior design that they fail to, to upkeep and maintain the spotlights and so the bulbs flicker and eventually fade out. That lighthouse would be guilty of obscuring people's view of where to find their salvation. They would be leaving the lost to die. And church, I I believe that's what our text is warning us against. If our job, if our job as the church is to help people see Jesus, then we have to realize that our behavior 
the way we conduct ourselves might obscure their view of Jesus. I think that's Paul's burden here in our text. He, he said in chapter 3, verse 15, that he's writing these instructions so that we might know how to behave in the church, how one ought to behave, how one ought to conduct himself or herself. And here in chapter 2, we've said it's all about how we behave in our public gatherings, specifically when we come together for corporate worship. So the way that we conduct ourselves in corporate worship, the way we order ourselves is supposed to point to Jesus. When Christians and non-Christians, when they come here and they worship with us, the goal is for all of us to see Jesus more clearly. But we're told here in the text that there are two big obstructions. Two big obstructions that commonly are found in churches that tend to block people's view of Jesus. And not only are they common to churches, they're common to men and women, respectively. In our passage, Paul is going to describe these two obstructions as gender-prone sins. He's going to make distinctions between men and women in the church, and he's going to make generalizations about each. He's going to say that men have a propensity towards anger and argumentation, which will obscure Jesus. And he's going to go on to say that women have a propensity towards showiness and ostentation, which will also make Jesus harder to see. Now, I, I know what we're about to read here is going to make some of you uncomfortable. Well, Paul's going to go on and he's going to say more things in verses 11 to 15 to give more instructions for women in the church that are going to make you even more uncomfortable. And we're going to get there in a couple of weeks. But in our day, with so much talk about gender fluidity and transgenderism, about you know, breaking out of a gender binary, I realized to then read a Bible passage that makes a clear binary distinction between men and women and applies generalizations to each, I realize that it can uh, elicit strong reactions to what seems to be a very, very regressive kind of teaching. I, I knew the latter half of chapter 2 is going to be controversial, but I came to realize as, my, as I, was, I was studying this that today's passage can ruffle just as many feathers. And so I want to be sensitive and the way that we are covering these verses. But you know, I, I think the most loving thing that I can be able to do for you is to not obscure the very words of Scripture. Because I, I believe all of Scripture is God-breathed. That means all of it, including controversial passages, originate from God Himself. Yes, Paul wrote these words. He made these gender distinctions. But God inspired him. And so what that means is when Paul says in verse 8, I desire, I desire these things, that doesn't mean that what follows is just his personal opinion. Remember, he is an apostle of God. He was sent of God. He reiterated that in verse 7. And so Paul speaks with apostolic authority on behalf of God. And so everything that follows should be heard as God's instructions for the right ordering of our public worship. And so I, I know that if I don't teach these verses with accuracy and clarity, if I make them obscure, if I make them vague, then I risk obscuring your view of God, of making him vague 
in your eyes. And that is the last thing I want to do. The whole point of my preaching is to help you see Jesus. And so I ask for you to just please withhold judgment of Paul. Don't brush him aside too quickly as some kind of ancient chauvinist. Let me help you to see what he is saying to the church, to men and to women in the church. So there are some instructions here that he is saying that while not inapplicable to women, they are most pressing for men. And there are other instructions, while not irrelevant to men, are most urgent for women. And so let's, let's look at this together. Let's start, and we'll first address the men of the church, because that, that's what Paul does in verse 8, and then we'll move on to talk to the women, following his words in verses 9 to 10. So Paul's instructions to the men of the church can be summarized like this. And if you want to follow along, look in your uh, bulletin, you'll see an outline and it, it lists out uh, some of these points. His instructions to the men can be summarized like this. If we want to help people see Jesus, then brothers in the church must worship in holy unity and not in argumentation. Let's worship in holy unity and not in argumentation. Now, that mention there of he wants this in every place would suggest that these instructions were not just for this one church. It wasn't just for the Ephesians. Rather, these instructions are applicable wherever the church gathers as the church to worship the Lord in every place that occurs, which would include right here, right now. Now, his focus is on the men when they pray. But remember, all of this is set in the context of corporate worship. And so that means we're not talking about your private prayers, or we're not just even talking about the pastoral prayer that happens here in a worship service. Verse 8, I, would, I believe, would apply to all of our singing of songs and our confessing of sins together as the body. Those elements in a worship service can be rightly seen as prayers to God. If you don't see your singing that you do here in this service as a prayer, then I don't know who you're singing to. Your songs are prayers. Your confessing are they're prayers. And so what I'm going to do here is I'm going to expand Paul's instructions into three parts, and I'm just going to use worship as synonymous with prayer because here we're talking about the same thing. So the first thing he says is for men to worship or to pray to their Lord with suitable expression. Men worship with suitable expression. Specifically, he says, in every place, he desires in every place that the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now, we, we, we should be careful here not to make too much out of the, the bodily gesture of lifting your hands when you worship. We know that Paul is not mandating for all Christians a particular posture in worship because you can find throughout Scripture a wide range of body postures when people are worshiping. In the Bible, it, it was quite normal for people when they publicly gathered to worship, it was normal for them to remain standing. In Nehemiah chapter 9, when all the Israelites assembled together, the Levites were told, led them in worship and began by saying to them, stand up and bless the Lord. 
And in Luke chapter 18, we think of the Pharisee, we think of the tax collector, and we're told that, they, that each of them, they were standing by themselves as they were praying to the Lord. And of course, there's that Revelation 7 vision of a great multitude that no one can count standing before the throne of the Lamb. And along with standing, a very common gesture in worship was the lifting or, or the spreading out of your hands. Psalm 28 verse 2 says, I lift my hands towards your most holy sanctuary. 1 Kings chapter 8 verse 22, we're told that King Solomon, he, he stood before the altar of the Lord and he prayed and, and to pray and he spread out his hands towards heaven before he began to pray. In Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 6, after Ezra blessed the Lord, all the people were told, answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. But you know, standing with your hands stretched to heavens is not the only posture that we find in Scripture. Sometimes worshipers sat. Sometimes they knelt. Sometimes they just laid prostrate on the floor with their face to the ground. What they did with their bodies, what they did with their hands, varied throughout the pages of Scripture. So likewise, what that means is that when you worship the Lord, you can stand, you can sit, you can kneel, you can lay prostrate in your hands. They can be lifted, they can be spread out, they can be folded, you know, they, they can be clapping, they can be waving. There is freedom here. Please don't make too much of posture. The whole point is to worship with suitable expression. The whole point is this. No matter what posture you adopt, the question is whether it's an appropriate cultural and personal expression of an inward heart of worship. Is it an appropriate cultural and personal expression of a heart of worship? And if you don't know what an appropriate cultural expression of worship looks like when conducted by a lot of men, then I recommend going to a local sporting event. Go to a Rockets game. Go to an Astros game. Go to a college football game. There you will definitely see it. You will see tons of men expressing their devotion to a team in culturally relevant ways with their hands lifted high, with shouting and chanting and, and little concern for how they look. So brothers, if you feel free to lift your hands when watching sports, then what is stopping you when you're, when you're worshiping Jesus? What does that say about your heart? Now, please don't feel obligated to have to lift your hands when you sing. If you're the kind of guy who, who can watch his favorite team win the championship game and your reaction is simply a quiet golf clap, then, you know, I don't think it would be suitable for you to then go on worshiping the Lord with shouts and raising your hands and jumping up and down. Worship your Lord with suitable expression, culturally and personally. Use your hands if you see fit, but understand the real emphasis in Paul's commands is on what your hands represent. And so the second thing he's saying to men in the church is for them to worship their Lord with holy hands of unity. Worship with holy hands of unity. Notice how he says to lift those holy hands without quarreling and without anger or quarreling. 
And so the emphasis here is on unity in your relationship with others. Are you angry at others? Is there conflict or quarreling in your life? Perhaps, perhaps with someone in church, perhaps with your wife, with your children. Paul is saying that there's no integrity in your worship if your life is marked at the same time by anger or quarreling. You can't stretch out your hands towards God and at the same time clench your fists at a neighbor. So brother, you can stand here on a Sunday morning lifting your hands high in worship, but if your heart is filled with anger and if your home is filled with strife, then you're not only hindering your own worship and prayers, you're not helping others see God. So fathers, you're you're not helping your children see their heavenly father. You're obscuring their view of him if they see their earthly father at home always carrying around anger and bitterness. Husbands, you're not helping your wife see Christ if her earthly bridegroom is so quick-tempered and argumentative. And brothers, We're not helping people see Jesus if we are prone to quarrel over theology, to quarrel over politics or over sports. Our infighting conceals the beauty of the body of Christ. Disunity, disharmony, discord within the church is one of the biggest obstructions keeping lost people from seeing Jesus. They get turned off by our conflict with each other. And that's why Paul highlights it. That's why he addresses it to the brothers in the church, because he knows that men are particularly susceptible at this, that this often, we are often at fault in this area. Now, it's not as if the sisters never get upset. It's not as if they never quarrel. But anger and argumentation are gender-prone sins that Christian men particularly have to deal with. It's tied to our ego. It's tied to our pride and something that we need to repent of. And so if you're going to use hands, then use those hands to beat your chest and to ask the Lord to be merciful to you, a sinner. And then lift those hands to Jesus, asking him to give you his strength, to give you his self-control so that you can deal with your anger in righteousness. Remember, Jesus got angry, but he didn't sin. Jesus was righteous in his anger. And so with his help, leaning on Jesus, you can be able to deal with your own anger in righteousness in such a way that it doesn't end up driving a wedge between you and the ones that you love, causing them to lose sight of Jesus. And, you know, beyond dealing with your own anger, brothers, We need to take on the personal responsibility of working for the peace and unity of the church. This is the third thing Paul is saying. We're being encouraged to worship our Lord with humble hands of peace. Humble hands of peace. Use your hands to make peace in the church. The Lord himself taught that the worship of God is incompatible with with a heart that ignores conflict, with a heart that refuses to be reconciled. 
In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus tells us to leave our gifts at the altar and go and first be reconciled with others before you come worshiping in prayer or in song. Or in Mark chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus says, quote, And whenever you stand praying, forgive you if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. So as you're standing praying, forgive if, anyone, if you have anything against anyone. So brothers, let's, let's preach the gospel to ourselves. Let's remind ourselves of how Jesus didn't lash out in anger in spite of your trespasses, in spite of all the ways that you slighted him, you've, you've, you've offended him. Instead, what he did was he took your place on the cross. He absorbed the righteous anger of God that was dead set against your sin. Remember that. Remember that the next time you feel like stewing in your anger, the next time you want to just sit there and feel sorry for yourself, for how others have treated you. Brothers, let's do our job. Let's be pillars of the truth. Let's be a lighthouse of the gospel. Let's help people see Jesus. Let's not obscure their view by being, by being men of peace who worship our Lord in holy unity and not in argumentation. Now that's a word to the men. Let's switch gears here and let's turn our attention now to the women of the church. Because like with the men, if sisters in the church want to help people see Jesus, then they must worship in modest beauty and not in ostentation. Worship in modest beauty, not in ostentation. Let's take a careful look at what Paul is saying here in verse 9 to 10. He says, Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now, ladies, notice with me, notice how Paul wants women to adorn themselves. He, he recognizes that women are created beautiful by God in order to reflect the beauty of God. And so they should seek to exhibit, to adorn their God-given beauty. So let's be very clear here. Paul is not instructing women to cover up or to hide their beauty. He's not telling Christian women to look plain and dowdy as if, Frumpiness is a sign of godliness. Now, the question is not whether you should adorn your beauty, but how you go about doing it. How should you, as a daughter of the Most High God, how should you adorn your beauty? I think there are three answers to that in this text. The first is for the sisters of the church to adorn their beauty with modest dress. With modest dress. The ESV mentions adorning yourself in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. If you have the NIV, it translates that as to dress modestly with decency and propriety. 
I think it's difficult really to distinguish between these various terms here and the way that you uh, would translate those Greek words. Uh, But the general idea here, the general idea is to dress with modesty whenever you assemble to worship with the church. Now, of course, that doesn't mean modesty is not required on the other six days of the week, but we're going to focus on the church and how we ought to behave in the church because that fits the context of Paul's letter. And so what he's saying to sisters in the church is that if you want to help other people see Jesus in our corporate worship, then be careful that what you wear doesn't capture people's attention and avert their eyes away from Christ. Now that would mean not wearing anything deliberately suggestive or seductive to distract your brothers in Christ. But, you know, modesty also means not wearing anything overly showy and ostentatious that might even distract your fellow sisters in Christ with thoughts of envy, thoughts of comparison. And so, bottom line, it's, it's about avoiding apparel that is intended to gain attention for yourself. Now, you know, I, I realize that you don't have any control over how people are going to react to what you wear. And so it's tempting to think, this is really their problem. Right? I mean, they're the ones being distracted. They're the ones taking their eyes off Jesus and looking at me. Don't blame me. And then don't blame women. Some would say, this is sexist, you know, to, to, to put the burden on women to have to watch what they wear. But that's why, that's why we have to stress that a woman's understanding of modesty has to begin with her own heart and not with the opinion of other people. Just as with the brothers and, and, and how what they do with their hands in worship, how, how what they do with their hands matters less than what's actually in their hearts, in the same way, what's in a woman's heart is the bigger, bigger concern when we're dealing with modesty. And so sisters, ask yourself this. When I get myself ready on Sunday mornings, who am I trying to please? Am I trying to please Jesus in the way that I dress, or am I hoping to gain attention for myself? And if you honestly deal with that question, and and with your own heart before God, I don't think you're going to have to worry too much thinking about what other people think about you, because modesty will just start to come natural to you if you are operating out of the mindset that I am dressing ultimately to please Jesus. Now, you know, I I realize modesty, it can be very hard to define, right? It can be very subjective. You know, what may be considered immodest in one generation or in one culture can be considered totally appropriate now in another. And that's what leads to the second thing we have to say about how to adorn your beauty. This is the second thing. Sisters, adorn your beauty with cultural discernment. With cultural discernment. If you keep on reading in verse 9, Paul prohibits the wearing of braided hair, um, of, of, of gold or pearls or costly attire. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean it's a sin for you to show up to church today with, 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 with a braided hair or, or, or with, with some gold earrings? I mean, are some of you ladies kind of like quietly undoing it right now and tucking some, you know, necklaces away? No, don't, don't worry about that. Paul is just making a cultural application in his day 
of this universal principle of modesty in your dress. There's no biblical ban on having braided hair or wearing gold or pearl jewelry. Hairstyles, jewelry, and dress have different meanings, different connotations, and different cultures. That's why you have to apply cultural discernment. Commentators tell us that in ancient Ephesus, there was a particular style of dress and adornment that was closely associated with the wealthy courtesans in Ephesian society. That's referring to high-class prostitutes. Historians have learned from sculptures and coins of that time period that these courtesans, these high-end prostitutes, wore their hairs, quote, in enormously elaborate arrangements with braids and curls interwoven or piled high like towers and decorated with gems, with gold, and with pearls. And so Paul's prohibition is simply an application of cultural discernment in that time period. He recognizes, he recognizes that when we worship, we're not doing it in a vacuum. We don't live and do church in a vacuum, but we do it in a culture that needs to be navigated with holiness and modesty and self-control. That's what needs to be guiding us as we're making decisions every morning, as we're getting ready, as we're getting dressed. Now, let me just add a very important qualifier here. You, you have to remember that Paul is speaking here to Christian women. So if, if he prohibits something, it's only a prohibition for believers. It's only a prohibition for members of the church and remember, the very heart behind it is to help people to see Jesus. And so what that means, church, is that if lost people who are actually trying to see Jesus, if they do show up at church, let's welcome them warmly, no matter what they're wearing, no matter what they look like. Some people have never stepped foot in a church before. They have no idea what's considered modest or not in a church setting. And so please don't apply these verses to them. There should be no prohibition, no condemnation at all for what they wear or how they appear. You welcome them. Be hospitable to them. So remember, Paul is speaking to these, these words to us. He's speaking particularly to sisters of the church. And sisters, understand that Paul's burden is for you to care more about your witness for Christ, more about the lost, than what people think about your style and fashion sense. It's, it's about not laying a stumbling block for anyone. It's about not confusing or contradicting your Christian witness by something as trivial as hairstyle or dress. So ladies, let me just ask you directly. Is your hairstyle, jewelry, and dress, is it intended to make much of you? To get people to come away in awe of you? Or did you put them on this morning to make much of God? Did you adorn your own beauty as a reflection of God's? Just think of the unique beauty of the moon, right? The, the moon, we, we all know, has no light in itself. Its light is merely a reflection of the sun's, and yet we would all agree that in a dark night sky, the moon is beautiful. 
It shines brilliantly, but it's merely a reflection of the sun. If you place the two side by side, no one is going to be staring at the moon. All eyes would be rightly focused on the sun. And so, sister, do you want eyes on you or eyes on God? You're coming before God. The two of you are, are, are side by side. Where do you want the eyes? Do you want your beauty to stand alone or do you want it to point to the beauty of Christ? Now, I think we should make it clear, like we did earlier, that even though this is, not, this is something that, it, that women are more susceptible to, and that's why Paul highlights it for them, but it's not as if there's no applicability to the men in the church. I'm sure there are brothers who need to be asking themselves the same questions, who need to be testing their own motives when they're getting ready on Sunday morning. So when you come to worship together as the church, where do you want eyes to be drawn? To yourself or ultimately to God? Are you a pillar of your own beauty or are you a pillar of the gospel truth of our Lord Jesus Christ? You know, sisters, I know there's always a mix of motives going on in the heart. I mean, the the heart is never as pure as, as you wish it to be. But if you honestly, if you honestly want to adorn yourself in such a way as to draw eyes ultimately to God, then listen to this last thing that Paul is saying to us. Let's adorn your beauty with good works. Adorn your beauty with good works. Let's read verses 9 to 10 again. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So apparently there are two types of feminine beauty. There's physical beauty of the body, but then there's moral beauty of the character. And and Paul's point is that Christian women should be adorning the latter. They should adorn their moral beauty. They should be known and praised most of all for their godliness and their good works, not for their clothing, not for their appearance. Now, the kind of good works that Paul has in mind, he goes on to mention later on in chapter 5. You want to look in chapter 5, verse 10. There he praises the woman of good repute, the woman who's, who has a reputation of good works, who brings up children, who shows hospitality, who washes the feet of the saints, who cares for the afflicted, who devotes herself to every good work. The woman of good repute adorns her beauty by what she does and not by what she wears. So think about what that means. This means that beauty, as God defines it, has no correlation with youth. But rather, this means as you mature in the faith, as you grow in godliness, your beauty matures and ripens with age. You can grow in beauty the older you get. Just think about how that completely reorients our understanding of who are the beautiful ones among us. Sisters, I urge you to strive for that kind of beauty. Be known for the good works you do and not for your wardrobe, not for your fashion sense. And brothers, 
Brothers, we have a responsibility here. We tend to exacerbate the problem. We tempt our sisters towards this gender-prone sins by our tendency to evaluate women primarily based on their physical beauty. By our failure to recognize the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, by, by not showering praise when we see the beauty of, a, of, of the hidden person of the heart, by not appreciating this moral beauty, we leave our sisters wondering if perhaps the Bible might be mistaken on this point. Maybe godliness is not all that beautiful. Maybe it can't compute, compete with a cute top and an amazing hair. So brothers, let's prove the Bible true. Let's prove Scripture true. Let's show our sisters that we do see and that we do appreciate the beauty of godliness. Let me just conclude with a question for us all. Is Jesus clearly seen at HCC? Church, let's remember what we came here for. We came here to see Jesus. We we're here to help other people see Jesus. So let's not be a distraction. Let's not be an obstruction. Let's not do anything that blocks people from seeing the beauty, the goodness, and the truthfulness of our Savior, the Lord Jesus.